Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. If I was to ask you how your week was, we might answer that in different ways. If you're uh, a Tom Cow, you might say, oh, yeah, work was good, I went to school, had a baby on Friday, you know, that sort, that sort of thing. Although to be true, um, Faith is the one who did most of the heavy lifting, I suspect. But, uh, you know, it, and different things would have happened in our lives. When I ask people that question, though, uh, yeah, how is your week, the most common answer I get is busy you know, or flat out, you know, people are just aware of how fast they're going. And, and a big part of that for many of us, of course, is work. Uh, it's estimated that the average person works 100,000 hours of paid employment throughout their life. Uh, and most of us have that sense of how do we balance up life with its demands of work and all the other responsibilities we have, including trying to get a bit of a break. Uh, from our work in different ways. I speak to some people and they live to work. Uh, other people work to live. You know, it's the other way around. I remember when I was doing gymnastics uh, years and years and years ago, uh, there was a guy I was training with who was about 10 years older than me and his great goal in life uh, was to retire by the time he was 40. Now, Dave was in the public service, state public service. He was the first person in the state public service to reduce down to a four-day permanent week. He considered that a wonderful achievement uh, as he uh, sort of paved the way for others to do the same thing. Uh, he explained to me that he wasn't going to get married uh, because to get married would mean to have to share his money, which would slow up his retirement plans. And so he didn't ever get married. Uh, he, he put it to one side. And Dave retired, not at 40, but at 41. Uh, he's been retired ever since, and uh, when I catch up with him at social occasions, I ask him how things are going, he says, it is just fun, 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 right? That's, that's exactly what he says, and that's his uh, philosophy. Some live to work, uh, some work to live, but all of us know the challenge of trying to get that balance. When you turn to the opening chapters of the Bible, what we're confronted with is a God who both works the work of creation, but also rests. It's interesting, isn't it? The God who 
uh, for six days, creates and is active, and then on the seventh day, uh, rests. And that's the balance in the chapter. And what I want to do for a few moments is to consider with you uh, the idea of us being made in the image of God uh, to both work and rest and to try and see what's going on there. But I do want to signal in advance that actually rest and the concept of rest tells you more about your life than your work does. Uh, if you think that work is the key to self-understanding, uh, then when you read chapter 1 of Genesis, what you discover is, no, actually that's wrong. Rest is actually the key to self-understanding and your purpose in life. It is much more central. So let me pray that, that uh, as we wrestle with these verses, and I'm really going to ask you to do a bit of work this morning, so uh, let me pray that we'll be able to do that well and see what God says to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this first chapter and a bit in the Bible that just outlines for us key ideas of what it means to be in your image, uh, to have you as the one who has made heaven and earth, uh, to understand what it means to be made to work under your authority. Uh, and Father, we pray you'll help us to understand that more clearly and also understand what it means to be invited into your rest and the implications of that as we understand ourselves, understand you, understand life. Uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we turn to Genesis chapter 1, we're confronted with the God of the Bible, that is, the God, the only God, who systematically constructs the universe in this world. Uh, we know he's a God of order, a God who creates beauty, a God who sustains absolutely everything he's made. And we are made in his image. Right? You come to verse 27 of chapter 1, and we're told mankind or humanity is made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Uh, that brings with it certain implications or responsibilities. When you go back a verse to verse 26, uh, we're told, uh, God says, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. That's a task that's delegated to us. You push past verse 27 to verse 28, and there's the instruction to subdue the world and to rule over it. Uh, when you get the sort of focus, uh, close-up focus in chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden, you go to verse 15, and we're told that man is in the garden to work it and to take care of it. See, what God has done is he entr he's entrusted to us the task of caring for the world that he's made. Now, can I say it didn't need to be that way? Uh, that is, God could have created a totally self-propagating world, uh, a world where we didn't need to eat or rest or, you know, we could have been created so all we had to do in life was play chess and go to hipster cafes and drink coffee and go to the beach and walk along the beach and read books and just, you know, wander around and somehow we'd just be fed and sustained. And, it, it, you know, it could have been, I know that's contrary to our experience, but it could have been exactly that way. But instead, this is the way God has made it. He's entrusted to us the task of caring for this world and deriving a living, a sustenance uh, from it. That's the way it goes. And he's given to us this responsibility or accountability. So we're like tenants. Um, when you lease a property from a landlord, you have certain obligations for the property to maintain it, to care for it, to look after it. And we're like tenants in God's created order. We're instructed to take care of it 
and we have responsibilities to God. We're given certain freedoms and authority, but they're not to be exercised outside of the scope of God's authority. What that means when it comes to work in this world is that it doesn't matter what job you do or who employs you, you are always serving God. He is always the boss of this world and your life in an ultimate sense. Then we come to Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to spend much time here, but we need to touch on it just briefly because it profoundly affects the nature of work in this world. When we arrive at chapter 3, what we discover is that humanity rejects God. Um, Adam and Eve no longer want God to be boss of them or boss of his world. They want to assume that responsibility for themselves. And there are consequences when it comes to work. So verse 17 of chapter 3, God speaks to Adam and says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles. Uh, work becomes tough and frustrating in a way that it was never originally created to be. There's a burden that comes with it. And all of us know that burden. It doesn't matter how much you enjoy your work, there are always difficulties associated with it. Uh, you know the problem in the created order, right? It's great to grow flowers and vegetables and herbs in your garden, but why do the weeds grow twice as fast as the flowers? Do you know what I mean? It's, there's a sense in which you understand that's the nature of living in this world. It's interesting as the Bible unfolds, it doesn't speak much about the motivations for working in this world. You come to the New Testament and it gives you um, some sort of uh, puzzle clues as to the way we're to approach our work, but not all that many. So, for example, you go to 2 Thessalonians 3 and the Apostle Paul speaks about the necessity of work in order to eat. Uh, or if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's instruction about working in order to pr provide for those who depend upon you, your family. Or in chapter 4, verse 28 of Ephesians, there's the idea of working for the benefit of people around you, to be generous. Or in Colossians 3 or Ephesians 6, uh, we work and by the work we do, we display, in some respects, the character of God in our work. Uh, there are those sort of clues about the nature of work, but not all that many. And in fact, a lot of the questions that dominate 21st century minds or thinking when it comes to work don't seem to get much airplay in the Bible. So questions like, what work should I choose? Or does God want me to select a particular job? Will he guide me to do it? Doesn't seem to get any airplay. Uh, should I aspire to be the best at my job I can possibly be? doesn't seem to be addressed when it comes to the Bible or the New Testament. Should I look for a job that pays more money? Or should I look for a job that where I get paid, where I don't need the money for whatever reason? Uh, should I look for a job that gives me a sense of personal fulfilment? They're often the questions that dominate uh, our world when it comes to work. But can I say they're not the questions that dominate the Bible? When we think about it, I'll come back to some of those in just a minute and just explore a few of them with you. Let me turn instead, though, to the other, what I think is 
is peculiar thing that happens here in this first section of um, the Bible, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3 of Genesis. What we saw last week is that on the sixth day, uh, humanity is very much the apex of God's creative activity. Right? It's, uh, we are central in God's purposes and we're the only ones who are made in the image of God. But can I say, we aren't the climax or the crown of this narrative. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that when you uh, look at the way in which the Bible, uh, the way the book of Genesis is constructed, um, previously there weren't chapter or verses uh, in, in the writing and they were supplied some, you know, millennia after the Bible was actually written. And they're very useful, but in the case of uh, Genesis, they're quite unhelpful. So, for example, um, the first section in Genesis is from verse 1 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. And you can see that because uh, in Genesis, you get this sort of literary heading, if you like, as you go through the book. This is the account of... The first time that appears is in chapter 2, verse 4. Then you get the same phrase that appears in chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 10, and chapter 11, verse 27, when the line of Abraham is introduced. These are like these sort of literary headings that separate out the sections of this book. So the first section is chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, uh, the seven days, and that makes sense. We know that the the number seven is very significant. It uh, communicates perfection and wholeness or completeness. And it's really significant in chapter one of Genesis. There are seven words in the first verse. Uh, there, is, there are 14 words in the second verse. Uh, God has mentioned 35 times, seven times five. The seven is very, very significant. And now we come to the seventh day. And I want to suggest to you that this is the climax of what happens in this first section. Also on this day, the seventh day, we see a change of pattern. And the change of pattern is meant to alert the reader that something new is happening, something different is going on here. Now, we didn't read through the whole first chapter, but if we had, it would have been really obvious what that change was. When you get to the, um, uh, the end of verse 5 of chapter 1, we're told there was evening, there was morning, there was the first day, right? the day sort of uh, formula. That happens at the end of the second day, verse 8. The third day, verse 13. And the same for the fourth and the fifth and the sixth day. Notice how the seventh day finishes. Did you notice that in verse 3 of chapter 2? How does it finish? You're right, it doesn't. Isn't that interesting? So... God rests on the seventh day, and as far as I can tell, from a biblical point of view, this day is still going. It actually doesn't conclude. Now, do you understand? I think this is actually pointing us to a truth. Let me step back from that for a moment. Why does God rest? I mean, how does that fit with what you know uh, about God. Well, how does it fit? Does it fit? Does it, I don't know about you, it feels a bit anticlimactic. You know, we're busy making the whole universe and uh, uh, the whole of the cosmos, we make the whole world, we make people, and we rest. It sort of feels like a bit of a letdown at the end of it. What, what is going on here? 
Can I say that when we get to the seventh day and it says God is resting, it's not saying God was doing nothing. You know, God didn't sort of get to the seventh day and go, man, I'm just so exhausted from creating the universe, I need a break. You know, uh, time for a rostered day off, my creative juices are just sapped, you know. There's, you know, there's, there's nothing like that going on here. Um, what God is doing on this seventh day is resting from his work of creating. Understand, he has finished the creative work. Doesn't mean he's doing nothing. It's quite a big job, apparently, to sustain everything he's made. And that's what he's been doing ever since he made the world. Uh, that's why Jesus, for example, in John chapter 5, I think it is, he says, my father has been working until now, and so I am working. And that's in the context of a Sabbath debate. So he doesn't think God's loafing around, his heavenly father. He's actually continuing to sustain all that he has made. But notice in chapter 2, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day, and made it holy, or set it apart. Now, what on earth is going on there? <laughs> you know, sets apart a seventh day. It's not just that he's resting. What does it mean to make something holy or to set it apart? What's the significance of this Sabbath day? In... Um, through the Old Testament, certainly when you get to the New Testament, there are lots of uh, Sabbath instructions, and certainly with Jesus, a lot of Sabbath debate. Now, normally the debate operates around Jesus um, doing stuff on the Sabbath, doing his Heavenly Father's will, and the religious leaders going, you ought not do that. You know, their, their response is, stop it or you'll go blind, right? That's the, uh, the way in which the, the religion, because the Sabbath we know is a time for doing nothing. But actually, that's not a biblical understanding of Sabbath. Let me show you a few clues just from the Old Testament as we think through the nature of this, this Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, uh, there's a list of the Ten Commandments at the start of Exodus 20, and one of those is keeping the Sabbath. And the instruction is clear. There should be no work on the Sabbath. And in the book of Exodus and elsewhere in the Old Testament, for God's people to work on the Sabbath meant that they would be executed, right? It was serious. Uh, but when you go to a place like Exodus 23, there's another Sabbath idea that appears. It's the Sabbath year, every seventh year. And on that year, no crops were to be sown. And on that year, it meant that the poor and even wild animals could have access to the seed that was left behind. When you go to Leviticus 25, it explains about the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee happened every 49th year, every seven times seven years. Right? It's the Sabbath 49th year. And a time uh, when land that had been disposed of in a variety of ways was meant to revert back to the original owners. It was sort of a levelling off of community ownership at that point. The Sabbath is not primarily about not working although it does involve that. But the Sabbath has a very positive purpose as well. You see, it was an occasion for remembering the generosity and the goodness of God and for celebrating that. 
When you go to a place like Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, God's people in anticipation of going into the promised land are instructed to keep the Sabbath. But I want you to listen to why they're told to keep the Sabbath. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Do you understand? It's primarily there a day of remembrance, remembering their salvation, remembering the goodness of God, remembering that he was to be their God in the land and they were to serve him. That's the focus of the idea of Sabbath, to look forward to the future that he had for his people. Yes, I think the Sabbath uh, operates a bit like a wedding anniversary does for a couple who've been married for a lot of years and who love being married. You know, like Sue and I, we had our 39th wedding anniversary the other day. And what we did was we looked back over 39 years of God's generosity to us. And we're just thinking how kind God had been to us in a whole variety of ways. And we stopped and we thought about the present blessings that we enjoyed, which were a gift from God's hand. And we also thought and prayed about the future, knowing we're totally secure in the hands of a loving and sovereign Heavenly Father. That's the way an anniversary operates. But that's the way Sabbath's meant to operate, a celebration of all that God has done and gives us. Do you understand Sabbath reminds us that our goal in life is not ultimately to work, but our goal in life is about God and serving him. What I'm going to do for a few moments is, is to think about how some of these ideas intersect with our thinking about work and also intersect with our thinking about the purpose of our lives. Okay, so let me try and wrap up some of the thinking. Firstly, let me talk about... Um, motivations for working. Uh, I said before, the God of the Bible, I think, seems to have not a lot of interest in what sort of work we do. Uh, we're made in the image of God to work. That's a good thing. Uh, but in terms of the content of that, is, there's not a lot in the Bible about the particular choice of job. But in our society, uh, so much of our self-image and self-understanding seems to be tied up with this question. And my guess is that in a congregation like this, which has a reasonably high educational and career aspirational sort of profile, this is likely to be a significant area to explore. And you know, even at a, um, a social level, this is a significant question. Uh, because you know, when you get into a social context, uh, one of the first questions people ask you if they don't know you is, what do you do? What do you do? See, it's our way of, oh, it's just friendly, I know, but it's also a way of actually pegging, in a sense, to work out uh, what's going on. It's always, I always like looking at the shock on people's faces when they discover what I do. But, uh, you know. <laughs> Can I say that what, what job you do, or your lack of a job, uh, does not determine your worth. Right? It must not determine your worth. 
God doesn't value a high court judge any more than an un unemployed used car salesman. Uh, that is the way God views us in this world. And the test of whether you believe that is how you would feel if tomorrow you lost the job you currently have or were un unable to work for some reason and were, say, on unemployment benefits for a period of time. Would that change the way you felt about yourself? And if it does, then it's because you actually don't understand how God views you and believe that. I'm not saying that situation wouldn't have implications for your life. It would. But it should not undermine your essential value in, the, in your own eyes because it doesn't in terms of the eyes of God. Can I say also your value isn't tied up with what income you earn? Uh, so if you're in a low-paying job or you're not paid at all because you're unemployed or perhaps it's because you're retired or you're a volunteer worker or you're a homemaker, does that mean you have less value? No. Does it mean you should try and get a job to earn income so you will have more value? No. See, those are, those are wrong ways to actually view ourselves and the way in which we function. It doesn't matter what work you do, whether it's paid or not, whatever you do, you ought to work as if serving the Lord, because that's who you are working for. Uh, it's interesting, actually, as a, as a church or a network of churches trying to think about what we pay our staff. Um, should we pay our staff based on their, the value of what they do? Right? So we should have a sliding scale and those staff who are more productive in terms of their outputs, we should pay more and those who are less productive, we should pay less. Right? Or let me frame it differently. Do you think we pay Matt Lehman according to his value? I want to say, no, we don't. We don't, we don't think about his value at all when we pay him. Right? See, what we do is we pay him so that he doesn't have to worry about money and can be set apart for the work of the gospel. That's what we do. The money is actually irrelevant um, at, at that point. But, but we need to know that it's irrelevant in terms of the way we view ourselves more generally. Money is for living. It's for providing. It's for being generous. It's not to determine your identity or your security. Uh, that is not, not the function of it. So let me ask, should we work um, to be fulfilled in our work? Should that be a goal? I think because God has um, created us to be workers, there should be a sense in which we derive uh, some sense of fulfillment from our work. I know it'll be corrupted because of Genesis chapter 3, but there should be an element of um, something good that comes out of achieving things. So, you know, the best, best analogy I can think of is that most of you know, or some of you will know, I'm a useless handyman, right? I am functionally disabled when it comes to being able to fix anything, really, around the home. But when I do manage to fix something, I want everybody to know about it. Because I get this, this sort of, this larger-than-life feeling of enormous satisfaction. So the other day, I'd been struggling to replace a washer because there was this cap on the tap I couldn't unscrew. 
And I mentioned to you, I eventually got it off, I eventually replaced the washer, and this leaking tap was no longer leaking. I insisted that Sue should come and have a look at this tap and witness the fact that the tap that was previously dripping was no longer dripping, okay? I, you know, I was pleased with myself, you know? I remember another occasion, I put the numbers for our house on the front cement block at the front of our house, and I insisted Sue should go out and look at the way I'd neatly screwed these numbers, 23, onto this block. And she came back and didn't say anything. And I, I thought I should say something soon, you know, because it was, it was a real work of art, you know. And, uh, and she didn't. I said, well, what do you think about the numbers, you know, on the cement block at the front? And she said, you know, I think it, they will look better in the middle of the block rather than stuck on one side. And I thought... Never occurred to me. I went out and sure enough, there they were, stuck on one side of this big block. And I thought, it would have been much better in the middle. I moved them, you know, and then made her come out and look at them again, you know. It's just, I think there is a sense, because we're made to work, there should be a level of satisfaction that we get uh, from our work. But let me say, if your key measurement in life is job satisfaction, then you are destined for profound disappointment and you'll be ultimately unfulfilled because there's more to life than work. Another question I, I hear Christians asking quite often is this one. As a Christian, should I be the best at my job that I can possibly be in order to honour God? The best at my job I can be in order to honour God. Now, let me say the short answer to this is no. You ought not be the best at your job you can possibly be. And in, if you do that, if you're the best at your job you can possibly be, almost certainly you're dishonouring God. Now, let me explain why I say that. Um, under God, it seems to me we have multiple responsibilities in life. Uh, we'll have responsibilities to family around us. We'll have responsibilities to neighbours. We'll have responsibilities to employers or in the context of our work. We have certain responsibilities as we serve one another in a church context. And you could add to those in a variety of ways. If I decide that what I need to be is the best I can possibly be at my job, then almost certainly I will do that at the expense of other responsibilities that I have under God. You understand? The, there is nowhere in the Bible that tells you to be the best worker you can possibly be. Right, the measure when it comes to those sort of activities is faithfulness to God. Do you understand how faithfulness works? Faithfulness works in a clustered way. You have certain clusters of responsibilities and under God you seek to honour him with respect to those responsibilities as you manage those and move them around. Sometimes some of those are more important than others. Therefore, they demand more time and attention. I remember when my, my mother was sick with Alzheimer's, she came to stay with us. Now, my faithfulness in looking after my mother at that point was much more time-consuming than it had been on previous occasions. It, it lifted up in the sense of priorities. I'm not saying they don't get adjusted from time to time, but to say I must be excellent at my work is, in the end, I think, to be an idolater. You see, it's to actually make something more important than God says it is. Faithfulness will mean being good at what you do. You know, faithful, uh, it'll mean 
demonstrating the character of God in what you do. But it is not the only thing you do. Right? Faithfulness in work, faithfulness in all areas of life. That's the task that we have as God's people. Let me move on just, just briefly to wrap up by talking about uh, rest. Because work um, tells you something about your life and the purpose that God has made you for. But rest actually points you to the central purpose for your life from which everything else is shaped. So let me spend just a few moments on that just as we conclude. Um, secular studies, they, they highlight the importance of the, the work-life-rest balance. And most of us know that if we burn the candle at both ends, we become unproductive, we make mistakes, uh, we get exhausted, and we can, we can feel flat. Right? So if I, if I go too hard for too long, I get grumpy. Right? And everyone, everyone around me suffers. Right? It's, it's actually not healthy for me to do that in that way. So when you look at the, the seven-day sort of work-life balance that you see woven into creation here, it does make sense. I read an article a little while ago that indicated that when daylight saving is introduced and we miss out an hour's sleep, the incidence of road traffic accidents goes up for the, the period immediately following. I think oh, it just makes sense. Everyone's a bit more tired and they have more pranks. You know, it's, a, it's not healthy uh, at that level. I don't know if it then reduces when we get the extra hour's sleep. Maybe we get dopey. But, uh, you know, they, you can see why that is. But at the end of the day... The biblical idea of rest is so much more than just taking a day off each week. It is so much more profound. Here in Genesis chapter 2, God invites humanity to enjoy rest with him. And it's relational. It's to remember who God is and why he should be central in all of life. It's interesting, the Westminster Confession of the Presbyterian Church, it puts it like this. It says, our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To enjoy Him forever. When you look in the New Testament, you see the frequency with which Jesus gets into fights on the Sabbath. It's because He's not arguing for the fact that he can have a seven-day week where he can work all the time. He's actually every time arguing for the centrality of where God fits in life. If you go to Mark chapters 2 and 3, uh, Jesus gets into a big debate uh, on the Sabbath with the re religious rulers who are saying he ought not to be doing his father's will on the Sabbath. That's essentially what it means. And what he says in Mark chapter 2 verse 28, he says to them, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Now, is he saying, I, I can do whatever I like on the Sabbath? Well, he probably is saying that, actually. But you know, it's much more than that. He is saying, he is the point of the Sabbath. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says this. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you Sabbath, rest, is what he says. I will give you rest. And at that point, he's not saying, 
an extra hour sleep in at the end of daylight saving. What he's saying is restored relationship with God, peace with God, uh, rest, the ability to enjoy him forever. Jesus is the one who makes that possible. You see, that is the key to life. What we have here at the start of the Bible is the fact that the point of life is not defined by work or anything else in this world. The point of life is defined by your relationship with God. And if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, through, through forgiveness, through having that peace with God, then it is actually impossible to have rest. It's impossible to actually know what the very point of life is. And inevitably what you do is you go searching for things to fill up that, that space in your life. But Jesus, he is the one who came to bring us into a relationship with God, uh, the ultimate rest. And when that happens, of course, work falls into perspective as part of your relationship with the Creator goal. Friends, what's the, the main goal of life? Um, we need to keep remembering the main goal of life is not work, but rest. We need to keep remembering that and allowing that to be central to how we think about who we are. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your uh, wonderful kindness to us. Uh, we thank you you've created us, you've, you've made us in your image, you've made us for work. Uh, but Father, we thank you so much more than that, you've made us for resting, that is for a relationship with you, uh, to know what it means to know you now and for all eternity and to know the forgiveness and life we have in the Lord Jesus who restores that rest, that relationship with you. Father, we pray you help us to understand it, to dwell on it, uh, to feast on it, uh, to delight in your kindness to us. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.